Forget frequently asked questions. Common sense. Common knowledge. Or Google. How about advice from a real genius? 95% of people in any profession are good enough to be qualified and licensed. 5% go above and beyond. They become very good at what they do. But only 0.1% are real geniuses. Richard Jacobs has made it his life's mission to find them for you. He hunts down and interviews geniuses in every field. Sleep science, cancer, stem cells, ketogenic diets, and more. Here come the geniuses. This is the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. Before we begin, a note from our sponsor. I'm Richard Jacobs, Executive Director of the nonprofit Finding Genius Foundation and host of the Finding Genius Podcast. In late 2016, I was rear-ended at 65 miles an hour by a truck on the highway, which sent me off-road into a ditch. The impact of the collision gave me a concussion and other injuries. At the hospital, a CT scan showed that I had thyroid nodules, which turned out to be cancer. It was then, when I had a biopsy in my neck, that I realized, even if I was a millionaire, I wouldn't want a second or a third biopsy due to the pain and the invasiveness of it. And appointments at that time for thyroid experts were three to six months out. And I was worried about dying now, even if that was irrational. So because of this, I've decided to raise money to conduct a literature review on steroids, on the causes of anxiety and depression, a condition that affects well over 50 million people in the United States and hundreds of millions worldwide. Our goal is to create a codex, a guide that reveals all possible treatments for anxiety and depression for people that live with the condition or for loved ones that have it, as my wife and my son do. To find out more about our fundraiser, visit FindingGeniusFoundation.org and click on Current Initiatives. And now, to our guest. Hello, this is Richard Jacobs with the Finding Genius Podcast, now part of the Finding Genius Foundation. A quick note about the foundation. We've uh, embarked on our massive literature review of uh, the causes of anxiety and depression and the treatments. Our our goal is to go through about 5,000-plus sources, videos, book authors, uh, lectures, peer-reviewed papers, etc., and condense it all into a low or no cost resource for people suffering from anxiety or depression or people that know someone that does. So to find out more, go to FindingGeniusFoundation.org. And today, my guest is uh, Dr. Lisa Matroyan. She's an author and a psychologist. And we're going to talk specifically about um, teenagers that uh, engage in what's called self-harm, cutting, and other behaviors. So Lisa, thank you for coming. Thank you for inviting me. I'm happy to be here with you today. Well, good. If you would tell me a bit about your, your background, how did you become a psychologist and an author? And how did you get to where you are today? My work began as a teacher of children and adolescents. And one of the kids once said to me, as I was thinking about going to graduate school, you know, back in the day, Ms. Machoyan, you would be a really good counselor. How come you're not one of the counselors? You're easy to talk with. And I had always been interested in psychology as my work as an educator was related to kids that had trauma histories and also kids that had trouble reading with dyslexia. So that's how my career began. And what led me into psychology and counseling and writing my book on teenage girls' depression was that right on the cusp of heading into graduate school, Richard, I had a cousin who I loved dearly that suicided. So that somewhat changed the course of of my work going into to graduate school. So yeah. you, you, then you started doing uh, counseling. And today we're going to talk about, again, cutting self-harm. Is that a major offshoot of counseling or did you um, decide to focus in that area and why? What happened was I was doing research on girls that 
had depression and had attempted suicide or had made suicidal gestures. I was also simultaneously doing my clinical training for psychology and to be a psychotherapist at the trauma center. And in both of these situations, there was quite a bit of cutting going on. It's not like I set out initially to explore cutting, but there it was in the girls that I was working with as a therapist in my training. And then when I stayed on as a staff clinician and also the girls that I was interviewing for my book. And at that time, my dissertation research as a doctoral student, they were suicidal, depressed, anxious. Lots of them had post-traumatic stress and some of them didn't have post-traumatic stress, but they were all cutting and engaging in self-harm. So there, there it was. So it, I led into it somewhat naturally, I guess, because it was what was going on with, with the kids at that time with the girls. So what is self-harm versus cutting and what is cutting just for people that don't understand? Self-harm can take the form of things beyond cutting. There's cutting, there's picking, there's other ways kids and youth and adults as well can hurt themselves, burning, high-risk behaviors to hurt themselves. Cutting is when they specifically take something, whether it be a scissor, a paperclip, a a knife, a razor, a piece of glass. There's a number of things uh, youth can cut with and cut their uh, somewhere on their on their body. So that's the, you know, there's other ways kids can self-injure, but cutting it in and of itself is you take some type of an object and they'll cut a spot on their body. And, and how many times do, do, I know it varies, but what, what, why do, um, you know, teenage girls seem to do this and resort to this behavior? There's two things that are going on. They're often trying to shift feelings that are unbearable, negative, awful feelings that are unbearable. And in a sense, it's a coping strategy. It's a way they're trying to regulate and change how they feel. It's just a hurtful and harmful and unhealthy coping strategy. I take a non-pathology model in that, again, it's kids trying to cope or what's called self-regulate. They're trying to change how they feel because they are either overwhelmed with negative feelings and flooded with negative feelings, and they don't know any other way to change how they feel, or they're feeling extremely numb and don't feel anything. There are cutters that girls have cut that are secret cutters. And again, I might add, boys also cut. It's more prevalent in girls. They're called secret cutters that really hide it and don't want anyone to see it. And then there are girls that I would call more help-seeking cutters that do want someone to see it because they are seeking help. And I can, you know, explain further about that. So how do people find out how cutting affects, you know, people and why people do it? Have you personally interviewed a lot of people that have done this? And do they give the explanations that you're giving? Or, you know, how how was your experience with this and... What did it look like to you when you, again, talk to some patients that, that do it? Yes, and I can actually read you a couple of quotes from some girls. Is that okay. what happens when somebody cuts is their body releases endorphins. And endorphins, a flood of endorphins, it's what happens if we get injured. Endorphins can also, be, also get released when we're exercising and running. Endorphins make you feel good. Endorphins can you know, bring on a a flood of calming 
and sedating and feel-good hormones. So there's an endorphin release. And when you cut, you get an endorphin relief. So it changes the way that you, you know, it changes the way a girl feels. You feel that she will feel better. If she's feeling completely numb and doesn't feel anything, she does then feel something. So what happens is a lot of times the kids don't know this initially, but it's become so mainstream right now. And the rates of cutting are extremely high during the pandemic because of COVID has increased it. And in the last, at the end of August, Mental Health um, America did a survey and found that nearly actually 54% of 11 to 17 year olds were either feeling like killing themselves suicidal or had actually cut or self-injured themselves in some way within the past two weeks, right, as school was starting. What happens also is while it's a way kids self-regulate, it also is a way that adults take notice. And girls had said, you know, again, here, I'll read a quote. I did it when my mom was there because she wouldn't listen to me. So I cut to prove a point. I was so aggravated. And then they'll be like, don't cut, talk to me. And I'll be like, okay, cutting gives me a reason for people to listen to me, but I don't think it's conscious. It's subconscious. If I cut, I'm not saying, gee, I want them to talk to me. So there's an example and another thing too. I cut when people don't listen. So if people should not listen, obviously she's feeling frustrated or, or numb or upset. And people do listen. Another young woman said it's an actualization of pain. There are several levels. The most basic is even if you tell people that something is wrong, a lot of times they don't know how wrong, but all they'll do is see a cut along a vein and they basically get the message right away. Before we continue, I've been personally funding the Finding Genius podcast for four and a half years now, which has led to 2,700 plus interviews of clinicians, researchers, scientists, CEOs, and other amazing people who are working to advance science and improve our lives and our world. Even though this podcast gets 100,000 plus downloads a month, we need your help to reach hundreds of thousands more worldwide. Please visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click on support us. We have three levels of membership from 10 to $49 a month, including perks such as the ability to see ahead in our interview calendar and ask questions of upcoming guests, transcripts of podcasts you're interested in, the ability to request specific topics or guests, and more. Visit findinggeniuspodcast.com and click support us today. Now back to the show. So it's also becomes a way that kids who are suffering, parents take heed. You know, a lot of times in kids' voices, girls' voices may not be listened to. But if a parent sees a cut, I can't tell you how many kids have been referred to me because of cutting. There's a lot of shame and stigma related to it. But usually that makes parents take notice. Again, many parents mm. notice signs of depression and anxiety prior to that. But if they haven't noticed or they haven't listened you know, a lot of things get dismissed as teen angst. Hopefully now people are a lot more alert to the mental health issues because of the pandemic. But a lot of times kids get dismissed. Oh, it's normal teen angst. It's normal teen turbulence. So that's something that stood out to me, both as a clinician working with girls, but also in the research I did interviewing girls was it was a way that people listened to them. I mean, people take notice in our culture, unfortunately, of violence. I mean, it's self-inflicted violence, but nonetheless, it's, it's a, you know, it's a act of violence against one, oneself. How serious is cutting if, if uh, a kid is doing it, is that 
could that be a good thing that they're at least getting their feelings out in that way? Or is it always a bad thing? And is it a very bad thing? I would say it's a very bad thing. It's sad that it takes that to get noticed that, you know, and again, parents are all doing the best they can and and they don't know. People just don't know enough signs and signals about mental health issues and depression, anxiety, post-traumatic stress. But the reason it's a bad thing is it's highly addictive. It's like a drug because of the endorphin release. What happens is, you know, a girl will cut once, but then the flood of endorphins and the, the feeling good, they want to feel that way again. So what then they'll cut again and again. And what happens is, you know, then they, like it's like a drug where you need more of the drug. One cut just won't do it. They'll have to do several more cuts cut deeper, more frequently, you know, it goes from one cut to a bunch of cuts and deeper cuts. And as I said, the frequency of, of cutting will increase. So it's, it's a very dangerous and it's just like any other addiction. It's very hard for kids to stop. So it's important, I think, to listen to kids and notice the signs and symptoms of other mental health red flags, but this has become extremely common and the norm. And so many girls are engaging in cutting. I think the most important thing, Richard, is if someone is cutting is to, or starting to cut or cutting, is they need to be, they need intervention right away, as soon as possible. So it doesn't continue. So what what kind of interventions seem to work versus not? The most important is you know, certainly therapy and a trusting therapeutic relationship. They're and teaching other forms of self-regulation. There's quite a few groups out there that have very highly structured formats to work with, with cutting. So ways there's DBT, which is found to be helpful, but other teaching other ways to self-regulate and change the way that they're feeling becomes really important. DBT. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. Dialectical behavioral therapy. So, you know, that's a way they can, often that's in a group or can be done individually, but that's certainly a way to bring in some mindfulness of, you know, what are you thinking? What are you feeling? What's going on at that particular moment when you're feeling these particular, particular feelings? So, those are ways. And again, somebody who's cunning needs to be in, in therapy and they need to really learn to develop coping strategies. What are some of the coping strategies that can work to replace cutting? Certainly bringing kids into the present moment, finding other, other ways such as are they exercising right on a regular basis? I mean, I go to very basic basic needs always with with all kids regardless of what they're struggling with mental health wise meaning you know are they getting enough sleep are they eating properly are they hydrating and are they exercising cuz exercise can release the same amount of endorphins if you get your cardiovascular system up as cutting does you know what's called a runner's high that's endorphins right. the well known runner's high that's the same thing as an endorphin relief as you would get from from cutting so that that's one huge coping huge coping strategy there are so many more can you when you're not feeling you know it's it's about how other ways to regulate how they're feeling 
listening to music, making a playlist of songs that make them feel better, engaging in social interaction, having somebody to talk to, learning how to, again, shift the way that they're feeling, shift their state, their emotional state, without doing it in a, in a harmful way. Is there a difference between people that cut because they're emotionally numb versus people that cut because they're actively depressed or anxious? That's a good question in that, you know, numbness can be from depression as well as feeling overwhelmed. Emotionally, I don't think there's a huge difference. It also can go back to if there's a trauma basis as well, because post-traumatic stress, people can feel extremely numb. You know, it's biphasic PTSD, especially if it's developmental, meaning they can feel very hyper aroused and hyper vigilant and highly activated. But that can also shift into feeling extremely numb in a sense, the body's trying to balance itself. So if it's from just chronic post-traumatic numbing, then that could be a little bit different. But again, there can also be a bit of a, a shift. I work with a teenage girl once and she was extremely extremely numbed out and when she began to cry in therapy I remember I was I think I was in training was years ago I remember my supervisor saying to me she's thawing out she's unnumbing she could actually feel versus not feeling so numb so there is the the cutting cutters that are completely numb and then ones that are depressed or extremely anxious, you know, anxiety is high, high right now. So there can be a, a differentiation, but they can also be completely overlapped. One person can feel numb at some times and also at other times feel overwhelmed with sad, anxious, scared, angry, frustrated feelings. In terms of, um, yeah, I know there's medications for depression and anxiety. You know, they may not work very well in some cases, but for cutting, are there any medications that could be redeployed for this and is it effective or is it a manifestation that really is untouchable by medication i'm i'm not um a huge advocate for putting young kids on drugs unless they really need it for depression there and often anxiety and depression overlap and again medication has saved a lot of people's lives and a lot of kids lives i would really want a child an adolescent to be fully evaluated Per se, there isn't a drug or medication for cutting. You know, the release of the endorphins is, in the sense, like like a sense of a drug for them. I would want someone to be really evaluated. If it's severe depression, then it may be indicated. Um, an antidepressant may be indicated. But per se, there isn't a medication for cutting. It's also what is overlapping. Usually kids that are cutting are also suffering with depression and anxiety, which are very overlapped as well, and or post-traumatic stress disorder. What's um, in kids, where would the PTSD come from? Like a bad home environment or not being able to go to school and socialize for the past year and a half? Like, What, what do you think the root is? There's, there's a lot of roots of post-traumatic stress. Post-traumatic stress can be caused by physical and sexual abuse, violence in the home or in the community, witness to violence, violence towards children, as I said, domestic violence, community violence, severe traumatic loss, homes with severe alcoholism where there might be some violence. So there's a lot of causes of childhood post-traumatic stress 
also, you know, kids that live in, in war. There's, I mean, there's many, many causes of post-traumatic stress. Emotional, there's emotional abuse that can traumatize kids as well. And then there's also a, which would, those would be very much in a, what's called a developmental trauma, where it's chronic complex, it's been part of their childhood and really Im- impacts their developing brain. Not that anything's wrong brain, but the brain gets impacted and the brain is very plastic, we must remember. So with the right treatment, it can help. There's also what can be, you know, a one-time, an acute trauma, a one-time trauma where there's witness to one thing versus ongoing, ongoing trauma. So there's a one-time, but they both can both lead to post-traumatic stress. The severity of developmental trauma is certainly more concerning because it's ongoing. Oh, how does this correlate with puberty in boys and girls? Is that the time where this tends to happen if it's going to happen? Or, you know, how does it happen? You know, kids can have post-traumatic stress from very, very young, from a young age on. It, you know, depending on the environment that they're living in, both home and, and community. What, to shift a bit to specifically depression, is there's a difference in that during childhood, boys tend to have higher rates of depression than girls do. In early adolescence, that dramatically shifts and the rates of depression rapidly rise for girls. That's part of the research that I did because I was curious as to why. A lot of people will very quickly attribute it to the hormonal changes of adolescence for girls with the onset of menses, but that's not the cause. In fact, you know, there's been research that, you know, drawn blood and it's shown it's psychosocial factors. It's the social factors that cause it because in early adolescence, girls experience an increase in estrogen, which actually should make you feel better. So it's not caused by puberty per se. It's girls get a lot of messages, even younger and younger now, Richard, about how they're supposed to be and how they're supposed to behave to fit in to the world. And it, they get bombarded in the, you know, now it's even younger. It's in what may be called the tween years. And, you know, the premise of my book, The Disappearing Girl, is that girls begin to not really say what they're thinking and feeling. They have to change who they are. They have to behave differently to fit in with the peer group. And now we've got all of this with the overlay of a pandemic, which is creating massive uncertainty and isolation. And social isolation is a huge risk factor for mental health issues where we're very social beings. We were originally tribal, you know, we're tribal beings and being, and kids having to be isolated is very hard. The remote learning has been hard. So we need to think of ways we can help kids and girls with connecting in ways that are safe, you know, whether it be distancing, the kids are going back to school and wearing masks, but at least they can be around other, other kids. So we need to encourage safe ways of of connection because the lack of connection is very hard and living in uncertainty and a lot of kids are very lonely right now so it's a long-winded answer to the question about puberty but I think it's important for people to know that the rates of depression really go up for girls in the early adolescent years and by mid by about age 15 they're mirroring the adult population where you have twice as many girls depressed as you do boys that's sort of you know women out 
number of men in depression and anxiety through the adult years. What I also want to say is that boys and men may have depression and anxiety, but it may manifest differently because they have been socialized to keep things in and not express it as much. So on some of the standardized ways of finding out about these things, boys and men may just may not be showing up quite as much. But what the research shows is higher rates for girls Girls engage in a lot more suicidal behaviors during the teenage years, but boys are more likely to actually kill themselves during the teenage years. For girls, if you have like, let's say a 12-year-old girl that's cutting versus a 15 or 16-year-old, any difference in, you know, it's worse if it starts earlier or it's worse if they're older, what's the, any difference between the two? I think it's, it's not good at any point, but the younger it starts, and if it goes unnoticed and untreated, I think it's going to be more more severe. But again, that doesn't mean to say if someone starts at 15 and they don't get help, it isn't going to be severe. We know that kids or girls and boys that start drinking at a younger age, 13 or 14, are much more prone to develop alcoholism. So anything that starts younger can be worrisome, but I wouldn't, I would not dismiss the severity it could evolve into if it started at 15 or 16. But a little 12-year-old cutting, which is unfortunately common now, it's very, very concerning. Any kid that's cutting themselves, you know, any girl that's cutting herself really needs to get help right away because, as I've said, it's it's going to escalate. It's, it's not going to go away by itself. So some of the protocols that are successful is what, group therapy or individual therapy or... Certainly, exercise I, or... I would I would certainly say individual therapy, potentially a group finding basically what are other ways they can regulate how they're feeling, and also knowing and naming the emotions, linking what they're thinking to what they're feeling. What what's the thought? What's the what's the feeling that goes with it? And then what's the action? So what was your thought or your feeling? And then what did you then do? with it? Did you go out and take a run? Did you call a friend? Did you FaceTime a friend? Did you listen to music? Or or did you find something to cut yourself with? So again, what are other ways that youth can regulate themselves? The sooner it's addressed, the better. They might not need the intensity of a particular, you know, treatment program for it you know, a therapist that might have specialty and know how to work with it. Again, like anything, the sooner the intervention, the better. And also, if there are ways to prevent it by making sure kids are learning healthy coping strategies, keeping lines of communication open. Do girls with uh, siblings fare better or does it make no difference? I don't. I haven't seen that it makes really that much of a difference. It's an interesting question. I'll I'll just kind of look into that research-wise. I haven't noticed that it makes a difference. And relationally, I would imagine, and just in historically, you know, I've worked as a therapist for a lot of girls for a lot of years, could be really depend on their relationship with their sister. Some girls have strong and healthy relationships with their sisters, and others have more strained and difficult relationships with their sisters. So I think it would depend on the sibling relationship with their sister. And does it matter if they're the older one or the younger one? Does it tend to happen more in younger girls if they have an older sibling? I haven't, in my own work, I haven't noticed any trends with regard to that. Certainly what can happen 
is so I've worked with girls that were the younger sister, girls that were the older sister. There's a lot of sibling competition and parental attention isn't balanced. That can cause a problem for the sibling that may not be the one getting as much attention. There was, you know, I've worked with a one girl, it's an example that her mom brought her right in at the first sign of one cut or maybe two cuts. She didn't become a cut. You know, I've worked with her for a number of years, but she you know, has a sister who gets a lot more attention. And I've had a situation was reversed where a girl was the older sister and had more difficulties because the younger sister had more mental health issues and was getting focused upon. Kind of, I'm, you know, I'm thinking through there might be a little bit of a trend in my own work where it's the younger sister, but again, it's not definitive research-wise, at least in my own my own work. So trying to balance out parental attention is another important factor for, for parents. And I know, especially now, parents are extremely, extremely overloaded. And if you have one child that has more, you know, challenges or mental health struggles than the other one, it's only a matter of time before something is going to manifest in the in the other child that doesn't have as many showing. They may fare all right, but that there, there are implications for that. A kid starts cutting, I would think all of a sudden they're going to have a lot of attention focused on them. You know, not in all families, but in a lot. Does that intensify and make it worse or does it make them withdraw? Because now all of a sudden their problem, I guess for lack of a better word, is is known to their family? Once it's known, again, they're secret cutters, and it can go a long time without it being known. They'll wear long sleeve shirts and cover their hands and, you know, cut on their inner thighs and in their stomach and on their stomach in ways that it can't be seen. And then there are kids that are, you know, it, it can be seen. It also depends on the sibling's age, whether parents, it's revealed to the entire family or to the other, to a sibling. Trying to think if I can think offhand quickly of any example. Yeah, I just wonder in general because of the all of a sudden the you know the, the heightened attention to the person that's cutting, how they react. Do they react well? Do they withdraw? Are there any patterns you see? Well, if they feel like they haven't been heard and they're needing help and are finally getting it, it could be a bit a bit of relief. So it can be very specific to circumstances. It can also be on the subjective experience of the girl, it can become stressful because now their parents are watching them like a hawk, trying to remove things that they may cut with. And that can help, but it doesn't work because they'll always find something if they're hooked on cutting, which is what happens. And it becomes their way of coping and their way of self-regulating. So on one hand, a lot of the girls I interviewed, it was a relief because they finally were getting help and they needed help and they wanted help. And I think in the long run, that is how they feel. But in the beginning, when the parents first discover it or a parent first discovers it and they're trying to cut because that's the only way they know how to change, shift their state, shift their affective, their emotional state, it can be disturbing and frustrating because they don't know how else to self-regulate. And that's how they've been doing it. You know, it's like somebody's who can't get their drug. It's very much like a drug. So the, the withdrawal and trying to trying to find something. And there was one family who, you know, it was an emergency. It was over a holiday weekend. And I got called to do a consult. And the mom 
had to run out and do an errand with the younger the younger daughter because the one girl had got sent home from school or camp because she was cutting and they thought she was okay and they had tried to remove things and you know I got a text and then we have a call to an emergency she's cutting again and that didn't surprise me in the least because again yeah. she's now to the word addicted to it so just because things get removed and the child's mm. found out doesn't mean they can't they need help to stop they really need help to stop how do you how do you de-addict someone that become addicted to cutting how do you help you, how do you break that link treatment you know treatment uh, working on you know what's what are you thinking or feeling what's the thought or the feeling when you start to cut and what you know what are other what, what else can you do what else can they do because there's other ways to get your endorphins it's just this is fast quick and easy it's just like you know in a way like i've said many times that drugs i would these kids on a physical activity you know an endorphin whether it's running getting on a trampoline um, doing something for other people helping others is can make you feel good about yourself this one particular girl they got her you know she's got treatment and you know they had her volunteering to help other other children so having kids help building their efficacy their sense of self self esteem is all important and again finding other ways other ways to change how you're change how they're feeling becomes highly, highly important. So the book you wrote, uh, The Disappearing Girl, does it cover cutting only or what is it, what, what does it focus on? It's the, the focus of the book is on girls' depression. It's actually the, the first and still the only book specifically devoted to girls' depression. It's based on in-depth clinical interviews of teenage girls and they're case studies where you can actually hear the girls' voices. So the, the theory and the basis of it is what girls had to say. And I interviewed lots of girls. It's also based on my work as a therapist with teenage girls. So it's on girls' depression, but there's certainly a lot about anxiety because of the coexistence. And you know, I have a chapter dedicated to trauma in there as well. But it's the stories of girls and a lot of them just everyday girls that things start to go go haywire in those early adolescent years and they you know their spirals into depression which could be prevented well something that really stood out to me in doing the research was it was highly pronounced the power of the peer group and the social group for kids richard that there's a lot to do with parents and parenting but was so what was so pronounced was what girls the length that girls have to go to to maintain friends and to fit in and look a certain way and have the right clothes and listen to the right music and the inclusion and exclusion of girls and the you know they're called groups now but they used to be called cliques that was really pronounced for me is was trying to fit in and have a peer group lot of girls in more recent years because I did some more recent research for a chapter I did for a colleague's book and that also girls are experiencing more sexual harassment in schools and that is also a precursor to depression anxiety cutting themselves if they feel like they don't look a certain way you know there's massive massive social media and media images now it's the bombardment is I can't think of a big enough word for it. So, you know, in my, in my little bit more recent research, that that's also stood out for me. But 
the peer group, you know, both their immediate friends, the larger peer group, that's, that's something that has really stood out. So it's also important for people to know and to ask, you know, not just how school was, but who did you sit with, you know, in the lunchroom? What were your classes like? Was, was anybody nice to you today? Was anybody not? Because there's also a lot of shame, you know, uh, girls have a lot of shame about all of this if they're not, you know, in, in a group and they're being, it's bullying. It's, it's severe form of bullying for girls and girls, because girls tend to be more socialized. What's I'm generalizing here, but you know, tend to be more socialized to sometimes keep things in. Not all girls, this can certainly vary, but they may be a bit less direct and it can be, you know, there can be certain things that they do that are just basically unkind to one another. And that can really lend itself to girls feeling depressed and anxious. And a lot of girls that I've worked with recently too saying, you know, things have really shifted for them with the pandemic and remote learning. And some girls are feeling a little, their, their friend groups have just changed, not because they couldn't always be with them, but just because of the, the pandemic. And it's been, I think the, for older teenage girls, it's been a little eye-opening. What's, what's most important in a friend? Is it more important to have a lot of friends or to have a few quality friends that are loyal and that you can trust, but that tends to be more 16 and 17 year olds where the younger girls, 12, mm. 13, 14, it's very imperative to have a friend group and to, to fit in. You can see some differences between early adolescence, middle adolescence, and, right. you know, the, the later, you know, the 11 and 12, 13 year olds, then the 14, 15, six, that, that age group. So that, uh, what, what are some of the warning signs that, you know, uh, a child is headed for emotional trouble here and possibly cutting. Certainly loneliness. And there's a lot of that right now. I mean, the repercussions of this pandemic, we're looking at years, but, you know, I used to say they're always in their room. Now they're in their room a lot because they were, you know, remote learning, but if you notice increased anxiety, irritability, a drop in grades, losing interest in what they once liked to do, increased you know, agitation, if they start to act out, pulling away. Um, also negative comments about the self is can be a huge red flag for depression. A lot of people think depression is more emotional, but it's also very cognitive. Negative self-talk, negative comments about the self, um, self-deprecating remarks, pessimism. So those can also be signs, you know, if you're, they're crying, they're moping, but also anger and agitation. Some kids, girls even, we used to be called mask depression, but the psychology tossed that term out, which I think is too bad because it was helpful. Some girls get very angry and defiant and oppositional, and that can be a sign of depression, but it can often get missed. You know, there was a study where they looked at girls who were angry and defiant, and this is a well-known psychiatric hospital. Those, they looked at two groups of girls, sad, moping girls and sad, crying, sort of the typical, what people think of as depression. And then girls that were, you know, acting out, angry, defiant, oppositional. And the clinicians rated the sad girls, sad, crying girls as depressed, but not the angry and oppositional girls. But on a self-report inventory, the angry oppositional girls were just as depressed as the 
sad crying girls. So that's something to look out for. If kids are, if a girl's acting out, that can be a sign of depression that often gets missed. So if their if their sleep gets um, disrupted, again, changes in sleep, changes in behavior, eating habits, morbid or sad writing, drawings, they can't get out of bed if they're having trouble with just basic self-care, getting up, getting to, you know, brushing their teeth, getting into the shower, um, lethargic, tired, low energy. And there's also a lot of physical, physical symptoms related to depression, as well as anxiety. Kids can get stomach aches, headaches, muscle tension. Girls are less likely, adolescents are much less likely to connect a feeling, say, of anxiety to a bodily symptoms. Like as an adult, you might know, oh, my shoulders are tense. I'm feeling stressed right now. Teenagers are less likely to make that link. So there's also, you know, headaches, stomach aches, nausea, problems like that, that, I mean, you always, always want to rule out any medical health concerns, but those are often, you know, there's physical signals of depression, as well as anxiety, as well as cognitive. It's not all of, you know, emotional, of their feeling of um, worthlessness, like I've said, I think trouble sleeping, insomnia, or excessive sleeping, you know, oversleeping, undersleeping, low frustration level, bouts of crying, I think I've said not, you know, participating in activities they used to, I know some of that can be curtailed now because of the pandemic, but that's still something to keep an eye out. And again, you know, physical symptoms, which we often, we often miss. And that's good. That's a good list. And uh, a lot more than I thought it would be. That's good for parents to look out for those warning signs. I missed any. There could be more, but I, I'm glad that at least we've gotten a few out there. Yeah, well, very good. Lisa, what's the, what's the best way for people to get your book and to find out more about your work? Where can they go? They can. My book's available on Amazon and Barnes & Noble, Disappearing Girl, colon, Learning the Language of Teenage Depression. I have a difficult last name to spell, but there's also a website for the book, thedisappearinggirl.com, which will link to mine. You know, I'm very accessible by phone and email, and anyone's welcome to call or, or text if they need consultation or help. I also do a lot of work with not just teens and girls, but also parents, parent support, parent guidance, parent coaching, as well as self-care for parents. And also for if I'm working with a parent, I wouldn't necessarily work specifically with the team and keep a boundary there, but I do both. Um, I can also be reached at 617-285-8198 and first and last name at gmail.com as well. Very good. Well, Lisa, thank you for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. It's a very, very important topic. So thank you. Thank you for having me. It is a very important topic, more so now than ever, ever before. If you like this podcast, please click the link in the description to subscribe and review us on iTunes. You've been listening to the Finding Genius Podcast with Richard Jacobs. If you like what you hear, be sure to review and subscribe to the Finding Genius Podcast on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And want to be smarter than everybody else? Become a premium member at FindingGeniusPodcast.com. This podcast is for information only. No advice of any kind is being given. Any action you take or don't take as a result of listening is your sole responsibility. Consult professionals when advice is needed.